to the world of digital soul. Ah, good morning, good people of the internet. Welcome, welcome, or good evening, whatever time you're listening to this. This is Ken, this is the Forgotten Podcast number seven. Uh, this is a Christmas-related podcast because it's Christmas, and welcome, welcome to a very fine Christmas that it is. Um, right, okay, so we're not going to mess around with this one, we're just going to go straight into it. Uh, and this is one, this is a story with a difference. It's, it's a major difference because it's not actually my story. It's someone else's, and uh, I'm I'm going to borrow it, and I'm going to tell it because um, I I kind of feel like I owe it to somebody, um, but I'll explain that. So anyway, here we are, a um, few days before Christmas, and um, I am reminded of this after having a few days off work, and I watched a film yesterday. And uh, it was a war film. Um, I, I'm so into my old war films. Uh, uh, all war films, in fact. I'm, I'm just obsessed with them. And also Game of Thrones. I'm obsessed with Game of Thrones. I've, I've watched Game of Thrones three times, from beginning to end. Uh, and you would be amazed. If you watch it a second time, you'd be amazed what you missed the first time around. Watch it a third time, and you think, well, I've seen it all now. And you still pick up on things that you missed, little things that you missed. Um, but I binge watched it the third time uh, I watched Game of Thrones. I binge watched it over a period of two and a half days, watched every single episode. And um, you'd be amazed what, what, I, what I picked up on. Um, and I know what's coming. I think I know what's coming. Winter is coming. That's what's coming. Winter is here. Ugh. We're all going to die, White Walkers. Ugh. Anyway, um, so, uh, right. So, for those of you whose first time is listening to one of these, my name is Ken. I am an ex-YouTuber. Uh, I worked for Machinima for a while. Uh, I worked in Los Angeles for a while. But prior to that, been in the motor trade for 30 years, but prior to that, when I was a young lad, I wasn't the most law-abiding person. D different time, completely different time. And these stories are all set back in the 1980s, roughly, anyway. Um, and this is when I was in my 20s to late 20s. And uh, it was the life we had. I, I was a, what we used to call a fagging gangster, uh, <laughs> which is the lowest form of life, really, uh, when you think about it. It's, um, you're not a gangster, you're not an armed robber, you're not a hero, you're nobody's, you know, you're nobody's cray, uh, but, um, but you are a watchman, you are you are a foot soldier and that's basically what we were so i've been telling these stories now for about five years and there are over well over a hundred of these now on my youtube channel which is ken burton uk and if you want to go back and listen not all of them are gems but um some of them some of them even i can't listen to now because i get way too emotional because I don't, now that I've spoken about an incident, now that I've talked it and the words have come out, it's freed me from thinking about it. And I, some of these situations I don't want to go back and think about. So anyway, that's how it works. So if you're listening to this on uh, audio, uh, Spotify, iTunes or whatever, um, then please bear with me because the, there is actually a video version of this which is on my YouTube channel, uh, which as I say is Ken Burton UK. And um, because I only really make one recording, the video version, and then I cut the MP3 from that and put it on iTunes or whatever, uh, you may hear some gaps, you may wonder what I'm doing, chances are I'm having a drink of water, or I'm lighting a fag, I've got a fag in front of me here, or you know, as I'm telling the story, but please bear with me. So, um, and please share with your friends. So, uh, <laughs> the, 
Let's get the um, disclaimer out of the way. So all any part of this podcast story may or may not be true. It is up to you, the listener, to decide whether or not you think it is. And if you think it is, then go to the YouTube channel and leave a comment. I read all of the comments um, and I comment back quite often. Uh, but uh, please do. I love reading your comments. And it's really interesting because some of your comments content on the comments is just fucking hilarious all right it's just brilliant if you're new to these podcasts i urge you to go back and listen to the others but um feel free entirely up to you i know it's a podcast with a difference it's not just a bunch of guys talking about current affairs or gaming or politics or whatever these are stories these are uh, for want of a better word fictional until proved otherwise. <laughs> oh, God. Right, so, um, and all names in this podcast story have been changed. Okay? All of them. This one is simp simply called The Para. Um, or Stan The Para. Because I'm going to call him Stan. His name wasn't Stan, but I'm going to call him Stan. And it's not my story, but I'll tell you. Uh, I'll tell you why it is a um, a story I want to tell. Let me just light a fag on it. Mmm, smoke. So um, back in the day uh, when we were what we were, when we did what we did. And the life that we led back in then, back in those days. And it was such a different time. It was, it's incredible to me now to see my 20-something son and his mates and their girlfriends and the way they all react together. Um, I watched Love Island, and not through choice, but I ended up watching Love Island. Um... And I was amazed. I was just amazed at, at what young people are like these days. I had absolutely no idea. I'm 53. Okay. Um, next year I'll be 54. That makes me an old fart. But I, I've got the most incredible amount of life experience. Not that that's of interest to employers, uh, I might add. Uh, can't get a job to save my life. That's why I sell cars for a living. But um, it is the most incredible thing. And some of it, some of it almost reverts back to my childhood. When, when you see uh, a couple and he has to ask her now, will you be my girlfriend? Or she has to say to him, will you be my boyfriend? We didn't have that. <laughs> There was either you were going with somebody where if you were going with somebody, then you'd see them a few times a week. If you then progressed that and you started going out with somebody, then you'd see them a few times a week and you'd speak every day. And the next stage to that was getting engaged. Now it seems there's all this friends with benefits stuff going on. And there's Tinder, and you just swipe. And, oh, look, there's one. I'll have her tonight. Um, okay. Or And girls do as well. Girls go, do, 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 do. He'll do. He looks like a good shag. I'll have him. Bloody hell. Right, okay. <laughs> it was a lot different in my day. You actually had to meet people. Um, and we did. We had a big group of friends we had a big group of contacts there wasn't a time where there wasn't that going on there was always a big group people came people went but there was always a big group so anyway um our story starts with a bloke called stan now back in the 80s stan was 67 years old. Quite an old man. 
he was frail, um, lived on his own. His wife had died the previous year. And uh, I didn't know Stan, never met him. And then we're all sitting around, getting drunk, around my flat, we're having beers, the girls drinking wine, there's music going on in the background, they're dancing uh, and doing the latest bloody whatever dance. Um, some of the lads are joining in. Um, we're getting drunk and we're chewing the fat. And then a friend of mine, who I'm going to call Gavin, said, um, did you read the paper? I said, no, I haven't seen the paper today. He said, uh, that old bloke got arrested. I said, um, for what? He said he's fucking tortured somebody. What? said he's had a bloke in his house for a week torturing him. I said, what the fuck? You're kidding me. He said, no, seriously, you've got to read this. You've got to read this. It's just bizarre. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Anyway, I wanted to pop out and get some facts anyway, so I picked up a paper. And sure enough, headline news. When I read it, this guy, this 67-year-old, caught a burglar, kept him in his house for a week, tortured him for a week, and uh, finally uh, somebody called the police, neighbours, whatever, and this old boy was arrested and he was at Winston Green being held on remand and his trial was coming up and I was fascinated by this and I spoke to a few people and I, I, I was like and some people went oh fucking hell, well yeah just some nutcase old bloke with Alzheimer's probably and I'm like really that's just incredible so anyway I I started to think about it and I talked to a few people and uh, me and Gavin got quite obsessed with this story of this bloke and what we did uh, after two weeks we sent in a request to go and visit him and he was at Winston Green. It was Birmingham, so it's only down the road from Coventry. And get a drink of water. Mmm, water. And um, to our surprise, this old boy agreed. So um, me and Gavin went down to Winston Green. And we went through the usual shit um, of being searched and doing this, doing that. Um, back back then, I don't know what it's like now, but back then uh, there was like just a, a bunch of small tables, um, <coughs> chairs one side, chairs the other, and all the visitors were brought in. You sat at the chair, all the prisoners were brought in, they sat opposite you. And then in walked this little old man um, he was in his own clothes and he looked totally lost just looked totally lost well we recognised him straight away and we put our hands up you know, and he came over sat down with us and he said uh so what do you two want? And he asked us if we were representing people or, or whether or not we were from the papers. Or He'd been offered money for his story. And me and Gavin sat there and we just said, we, we followed what had happened. 
but we'd really, really like to hear it from you. And maybe there's something we can do to help. And we wondered whether or not, you know, and we discussed it, you know. Is there somebody we can go and lean on? Um, this burglar or his family or whatever. Is there somebody we can go and strong arm to uh, get the charges dropped? Because we thought it was just wrong that this 67-year-old was, was in Winston Green with all the nonces and fucking animals that were in there. And uh, he said to us, well, I'm guilty. He, he said, I did what they said I did. I said, you're joking. You fucking tortured this bloke. And he was like, yeah. Yeah, I did. I said, they're going to throw the key away. You're going to die in here. He said, well, everybody's got to die somewhere. And then he said something really, really weird. He said, to be honest, I died a long, long time ago. And then I died again when my wife died. It's the third time. It won't mean anything. Anyway, we left. Um, we had an hour. And we went back uh, to my flat. And we sat and talked about it. And we were wondering whether or not there was anything we could do. This, um, this burglar, uh, we knew of him. Uh, friends of friends kind of had a bit of a connection and uh, we knew who he was. Um, so we thought we might go and pay him a visit. And then we discovered that this burglar was uh, on remand at Winston Green. Same fucking place that Stan was. And we just thought that was wrong. Stan's got to look at this bloke every day for the time that he's there until his trial. And he was being represented by um, a a dickhead who basically just told him plead guilty, you'll be up in front of the judge, just plead guilty, walk away. And we thought that was very wrong. We just did. Following week, we put in another request to go and see him. And I, in the meantime, went to see the family, a member of the family, told them this story. And uh, they were sort of, you know, we can't help every waif and stray and nutcase. You know, we're quite happy to take care of this burglar. But, um, you know, we can get to him. Um, but apart from that, there's nothing else we can do. Uh, and that was fair enough. I mean, they, they were going to do the burglar. And that was, that was fine. So we went down, Gavin and myself following week. And we were really, really lucky because um, there had been some sort of incident at the prison and uh, they were cracking down on contraband. And so every visit was timed and you were in a room um, with the prison guards stood next to you. And so there was just us. And um, we'd already asked him what had happened, and he kind of told us. And then we said to him, second time we went, what really happened? And he started to tell us. 
He said, he said, uh, where do you want me to start? I said, at the beginning. He said, well, okay. He said, as a young man, he said, with the war on, fit and able with his two brothers, he joined the army. Of course he did. He became quite good. Quite good with the rifle. He was a fit young man. His um, his dad was a working man, worked in a foundry. And he'd worked at the foundry. And he was fit and healthy and young and good. He was a good fighter. He was good with a rifle. He was a good soldier. And so they brought him out of the company that he was with and gave him an opportunity to be a paratrooper. And he was saying what a wretch it was to leave his two brothers because only he was chosen. And he went. And he went to training. He went through... Um, he went through a year of the war, being dropped in at various locations and fighting his way past the Germans. And after a while, he said, you, you stop thinking about the people that you kill. They don't really feature in your thought process anymore. So when you start, and when you first pull that trigger, you get sleep, sleepless nights. He said, you see faces. He said, but after a while, you don't. His chosen weapon was a Thompson machine gun. He used to tell us how he'd um, clean it, oil it, look after it. Um, pretty sure it was a Thompson. Can't remember. He said, but the MP40 was always the better weapon. And uh, wherever he could, he said if they were in a combat situation, he'd drop his gun and pick up an MP40 if there was one available. Because it was the better weapon. And... Um, He told us some stories about what he did, how he did it. And then he said, and then he said that there are situations where he should have died. He could have died. But other people, his comrades, either dragged him out or stepped in or backed him up. And he was wounded twice. He was shot in the chest on one occasion. Six months he was in a hospital and he was shot in the leg on another occasion. But he still went back. He still went back. He said, so one particular events that kind of ended his war he was chosen amongst ten others to be dropped behind enemy lines and it was in France the the Germans had he said the Germans had taken Paris at this point I don't know when that was but he was dropped between enemy lines and their job was to blow up a bridge and so with heavy packs and a load of explosives attached to them, they jumped out of the aircraft. He said they were really overweight for the jump. He said, but they jumped anyway. And they landed behind enemy lines. He said, and uh, it was only, he said, maybe two or three hours he was on the ground 
couldn't see where his friends had landed, came across a farmhouse. He knew that on his maps there, there wasn't any farmhouse. They were landing in an open area. So he instantly kind of figured that either the wind had blown him or the plane had dropped them in the wrong place. But uh, he had to get his bearings, but he had to, because it was a nighttime job, he had to rest. So he went into the farmhouse. And first thing in the morning, he, uh, he awoke to a bunch of German soldiers and they captured him took his weapons, kicked the shit out of him, and then tied him to a post in a barn. And he said that uh, these guys were on a particular mission. They didn't have time for prisoners. So they, they left them him and one German soldier to keep an eye on him. The farmer, the farmer's daughter, the farmer's wife, and another girl who wasn't related to the farmer, but her parents had been killed and she, she was living with them. Um, they were left there too, and they would cook. And he said they would sometimes have meat. He said over the week that he was tied to this thing, he said repeatedly, the other side of the barn, one of these girls would be brought in late at night, dragged out of her bed and raped by this soldier. One soldier. Apparently the farmer decided this wasn't going down too well and he he took on this soldier and he got shot and killed. And uh, as a punishment, he said this soldier shot the wife and it just left these two girls. And as he was being fed one night, he asked one of these girls, he said and there was a real language barrier. She couldn't speak English, he couldn't speak French. But she needed, he needed her to free him. And um, she got the message and she undid the ropes. So he said what he did to that soldier, he didn't think he was capable of doing. He didn't think that that was the person he was or that he had it in him. He said, but he did. And men of war do terrible things. I remember him telling me that. So he said, the war ended, um, and he went back to his life, and he worked at the GEC, and he worked at this place, and he worked at that place, and then he retired with his missus, both of them, hard-working people all their lives, and she uh, was taken by cancer. And he was on his own. No children. No relatives. He, both of his brothers died in the war. His parents were dead. He didn't didn't know whether or not he had cousins or nephews or nieces or any of that. <coughs> it's a really, really sad story. And then he said... Um, 
He's surrounded by the things that kept him going. He was surrounded by um, by the things that made his wife happy. She was a collector of ornaments and uh, she collected brass dogs um, and she collected candelabra she she collected lots of things china and his whole house so was dedicated to her he said and every time he got up in the morning and he looked around it was as if she was still there he said and quite often he talked to her he said so you can imagine he said, um, one day he hears a noise and he gets up and there's somebody downstairs. Well, this, um, this guy brought a little memento with him from the war. He brought a Luger pistol with him. And he still had it. He said, and every now and then when he was bored, he'd take it out and he'd oil it and make sure the mechanism was good and he'd clean it. And it sat in his bedside table. All those years, sat in his bedside table. So he went downstairs with this thing in his hand and he said, um, I pointed it at this man, he said, who was taller than me, bigger than me, younger than me, stronger than me. And I told him to sit in the chair. And, uh, He said, he came for me. He said, and we fought. He said, 67 years old, and he fought off 20-something-year-old burglar. He said, and, and by some chance of fate, he managed to get on top of him. And he was all but ready to shoot him. And then he could see, he said, from where he was on top of this guy, on the table, was a picture of his wife in a silver frame. And uh, the burglar had obviously tried to had taken this but ripped out the picture he said and it was half in the frame half out the frame ripped in two best picture he ever had he said of his wife and a, a one-off picture was taken years and years and years ago and it, it meant the world to him. That picture meant the world to him. And so he hit this guy with the butt of this Luger. And he kept hitting him until he was unconscious. And then he said he sat in a chair and waited for this guy to wake up. He'd uh, taped the guy's legs, he'd taped the guy's hands. Um, and he said, Jesus Christ, this is so emotional. He said, I, um, I could only think of the man that I was back then. He said, the rage the anger, 
never felt anything like it since the day that he killed that soldier. And the way he killed that soldier was slow. He put, um, he put one cut into this soldier for every time he'd raped one of these girls. And um, then he would um, bandage it up with some rag because I didn't want him to bleed to death I didn't want it too quick um, and he pretty much did the same to the burglar when he looked at what the burglar had taken pictures photo frames um, silver some of the ornaments a plate that was apparently um, she she had been given when uh, a, a member of the royal family went to visit her works and one of the proudest moments in his wife's life was when she was able to curtsy for the young queen um, and she was given a plate to commemorate it and it was smashed one of his prized possessions. He said he, he turned off, he turned everything off. He turned off his emotions, he turned off his feelings. He said for a little while he stopped being the human being that he'd been for the last 40 years. And he reverted back to being that man in the barn, full of anger, full of hate, full of rage. And over the period of a week, this burglar was made to pay for every single item that he'd attempted to steal or that he'd broken. Every item. He said and each time he did something to this guy, he would take that item that was broken or that he'd stolen and explain to him why it was valuable. Not monetarily, why it was his life that this guy was stealing, his, his wife's life, everything about it. The story was incredible. Um, the burglar had lost fingernails. Uh, he had lost teeth. He'd lost two fingers. Um, he'd lost his toenails. He pretty much lost anything that he could lose. Now he said there was one major difference between the German soldier that he killed and the burglar. So because the German soldier lost another precious item, he said, and eventually that's how he died. He said, because I cut it off the dirty little bastard. Can you imagine doing that? Can you imagine? No matter how tough you are, no matter how unfeeling you are, could you do that to another human being? Jesus. But you understand why? So, um, the story he told us 
and the, this totally amazed me went on for four hours and when we <laughs> we turned to the guard um, and we we said you know Jesus Christ isn't time up and the guard just the screw just went I needed to hear how that ended <laughs> <coughs> And he was stood in the corner for four hours listening to this. At least we were sat down. Told him we'd visit him the following week. And um, we went back um, and I approached the family again. And I said, look, this is the abridged version of this guy's story. Is there nothing we can do? Is there no judge that we can pay off? Is there no is there no lawyer that we can use who can deal with this? This guy can't die in jail. So the the family uh, instructed their lawyer to represent him. Um, and it was about, I think it was about three months afterwards uh, when this guy went to trial, Birmingham Crown Court. Um, and interestingly, the burglar was out on bail at this point, um, telling the story, selling it to the newspapers about how this crazy old man had tried to kill him. And uh, he got a lot of public sympathy. Uh, this burglar, making himself out to be the victim. Um, and that was annoying me. That was starting to annoy me. And uh, me and Gavin discussed this. Um, we went to an area in Coventry called Fosal, where um, this guy lived with his mum. Um, and we waited and we watched and uh, he went to the pub one night so um, as it happens he was with two guys so we knew we were we were underhanded and we thought you know maybe leave it for another day and then we went in the pub people are buying him drinks people are calling him calling him a hero, treating him like he's something. When he went for a piss, that was something all right. Gavin watched the door. I um, didn't speak to him. Just stood next to him at the urinal. And he looked at me because I wasn't taking a piss. And he looked at me a bit confused. Obviously he had a few beers. And I grabbed him around the chin. And I pushed him. The back of his head down onto one of the sinks. And I fucking smashed it. When he was on the floor, I kicked the living fuck out of him. Punched him, God knows how many times. Door opened, Gavin whistled. I left this cut. I left this guy on the floor. Um. And me and Gavin left. Uh, we went to the trial. And the burglar gave evidence. 
and he couldn't see me. I was in the public dock. It was above the. Uh, it was above above where these guys were sat. I t I knew there was a, a, a distinct possibility he recognised me, um, and I was prepared for that. But to my surprise, to my great surprise, a member of the family was there. Maybe four or five people to my to my right, and I nodded at him, and he nodded at me. We acknowledged each other. Didn't say anything. And the trial wasn't a trial. It was it was an appearance. And Stan pleaded guilty. And the judge called it heinous. 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 His crimes against this poor burglar. Um, and he, he was... The, the judge must have been talking for ten minutes. Just talking about what a loathsome human being this man was. And I couldn't help thinking, this country trained him to be that. We trained him to be that. 67 years old or not, we trained that man to be a killer. How can you untrain that? How do you take that away from somebody? We gave him that mindset. We gave him the mental ability to kill and torture. And there he was. Frail old man. Stood in a dock. Head bowed. Calling the judge, sir. So, um... I kind of, I kind of worked out the judge hadn't been bought. Um, the lawyer was brilliant. The lawyer was brilliant. Um, when he was talking about Stan's war record, Stan actually leaned up, grabbed hold of his um, his lawyer's sleeve on his suit, and just shook his head. And the lawyer stopped talking about that Stan's war record, um, and got onto the facts. And they claimed, you know, they, were, they claimed all sorts of things, mitigating circumstances and all the rest of it. Um, they didn't pass sentence. Um, it was just adjourned for reports and sentencing would take place in a week. We knew at that point he was going to jail. He was going to jail. The burglar was given community service for his crimes due to what uh, Stan did to him. He was given community service. Uh, that just amazed me. Just amazed me. But um, that's what happened. A week later, we weren't there. It was a closed court. And uh, Stan was given eight years. He wasn't going to last eight years. Be lucky if he was going to last eight days. But... Um, The burglar, uh, he knew who'd done it, him and his brothers, um, and they uh, they kind of wanted revenge until somebody reminded them that we were connected and that should they extract any form of revenge, then they would all burn in that house and so they never came after us I had a few weird phone calls I got 
some messages came down about this guy talking it up in a pub, how he was going to take me out. Um, and how it had got nothing to do with me, it was between him and this old man. And I shouldn't have got involved and it was none of my business and you know, all the rest of it. Big mouth felt that had. Big mouth. Well, uh, <clears throat> Stan went back to uh, Winston Green. Uh, he was on hold there until he got moved to an open prison. Can't remember which one it was. What I do know is when he arrived at that open prison, the family had intervened and he found himself with his own cell, telly, music player. He had a VCR, comfy bed, everything that they could have done for him, they did for him. And it was later actually that I found out, much, much later, that this story had got back to the old man who ran the family. He was the head of the family. And he'd served, um, not in any major capacity, but he, he'd done his stint in the army. And it was him that uh, basically put the instruction down that this guy was to be given respect and everything that he needed. And he was. He was given everything that he needed. He was in jail for six months. Um, and then there was a story in the paper that this uh, vigilante had died. And I'm not going to. I'm not going to make any bones about it. I cried that day. Big tough Ken cried that day because it was such a shame such a shame he'd have been out in three and once he got out he'd have been helped uh, but he died he was brought back to Coventry his body was and um his funeral was paid for by an anonymous source. I'd, I'd actually thought about paying for it. And if no one else had, I would have. He wasn't going to find himself in a pauper's grave. And he was buried uh, next to his wife. And uh, there must have been a hundred people at his funeral. People representing the family, people representing the army. There were people there in uniform. There were soldiers who had fought. wearing their medals and Stan was buried with his medals he never mentioned them all the time I knew him he never mentioned them he got a chestful absolute chestful but um, anyway uh, his funeral was a grand old affair. The wake was held in the pub. Everything was catered. Everything was free. The beer flowed and the food was fitting for the occasion. And we toasted him. And then that was it. And that was it. That That's it. That's 
Stan's story, which for 99.99% of the population has died with him. But not now, because I've, I've told his story and there will be people back in Coventry that remember this. And there will be people who knew Stan, certainly those that knew of him. Uh, I still visit Stan's grave. I don't go to Coventry that often now. There's, there's, there's too much. There, there's too many memories. It actually depresses me when I go there now, and I come away and. Uh, there's, there's too much happened there. Places, people, times, faces. But when I am there, uh, I, I make a point of going down to see Stan. And not only Stan, There are, I've got probably six or seven people in that uh, particular graveyard um, that I knew and knew well. Friends. And if anything, I'd like to think that's what Stan was at the end. He was my friend. Hugely respected him. Hugely. And anyone that serves. It's really unfortunate that I couldn't serve myself. But they wouldn't let me in on medical grounds due to some poxy fucking eye condition. Jesus. All I wanted to do when I left school, join the army. Uh, but that is Stan's story. And um, it's a story that shouldn't be forgotten. There are probably a hundred like it that are lost in time. It's not a pleasant story. It's not about being pleasant. So um, about a month afterwards, after the funeral, everything back to normal. Um, we're doing what we do. We're repoing cars. We're working with the family. You know. I had a um, <laughs> had a message that somebody wanted to see me, and uh, I was like, "Okay." And it was some guy from Nottingham, I think it was. Some place uh, I didn't really know or recognise, but it was in Nottinghamshire. And so, you know, I was just given a phone number, so I phoned this guy. And he said that he was uh, he was one of the screws at Stan's prison, and he was there the day Stan died. And he said, "There's one thing that Stan wanted me to tell you." I said, "What's that?" He said that he died with a big fat smile on his face. I don't know, when you think about it, I mean, he, he didn't die lonely. Uh, he didn't die an old, infirm man in his house. He had people around him. He had friends inside. People had respect for him. So, massive difference being inside if you've got that. He was never messed with. He was never talked down to. He was treated with the honour that he deserves, I think. 
I like to think that um, his last days were good ones. Um, and I like to think that he's at peace now. He's with his he's with his wife, he's with his mates, his comrades. So one bit left to the story. I was in a club um, a year later, about a year later, and uh, one of my mates uh, said, there's a bloke that won't keep his fucking eyes off you. Really? So is that what this club's become now? He said, uh, no, he said, he's looking at you with fucking daggers. So I looked across. It was the burglar. Stood there with four or five of his mates. And uh, I just smiled at him. Thinking, you know, hopefully this guy and his friends are going to be waiting for us outside. Because... We're all going to Park Lane after this, and uh, there'll be about 20 of us that leave at the same time. And no matter how many guys he's got, he's going to get his ass kicked. <laughs> he, was, he wasn't waiting for us. Well, the burglar left Coventry. And he went somewhere else. And uh, he, he moved with his family. All of them went. And then I heard, um, not so long after that, that he'd been stabbed. And uh, he died. Don't know who stabbed him. No idea. But I think he got what he deserved. And if he'd have stayed in Coventry, looking at me with fucking daggers, then he would have died. I think I, I inherited a little bit of Stan's hatred. I'm not sure I could have done what Stan did. But I inherited some of his rage, I think. And it's not a good thing to have. It's not a good thing to carry. It took quite a while to uh, for that to disappear. Eventually it did. So, um, so we can sit back and we can say, well, what comes around goes around. But uh, this isn't about the burglar. Fuck the burglar. If he died in a pool of his own shit, I would have smiled. I just would. This is Stan's story. Not mine. Stan was a hero. All his life. Well, um, I do hope you've enjoyed this one. Uh, a little bit dark, maybe. And I was going to tell a different one, but I saw that film the other day and I, I thought of Stan. And I just thought, if if I disappear tomorrow, because Gavin's not with us anymore, and I wouldn't Im imagine for one second that the prison guard would um, would tell the story. Somebody has to. Uh, I'd like to think 
having listened to this, you're now a part of Stan's story. It's his legacy. And I've carried it. And now you carry a part of it. And please never forget. Please don't. This has been uh, Ken. This has been a uh, forgotten podcast. And as ever, leave your comments, guys. And I will see you on the dark side. Welcome to the world of digital sound. Shutting down all systems.